morning comes from Psalm chapter 110. Psalms 110. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Thank you, Lawrence. Good to be with you all this morning. Uh, the lightning bolt and that screech. If that didn't wake you up, nothing will. The screech was my fault. I bumped the on button on my mic, Lawrence. Sorry about that. But good news is that that happened during the very first verse, and that's where we're going to spend all our time. So if you, if you didn't hear what was said, uh, we're going we're to cover it. Uh, Jeff prayed that God would accept our worship. Now, I don't know about you, but on a day like this, it's hard to just kind of get up and get going. Uh, sometimes you just... You just want to curl up under the covers, and if you don't have to be at work this morning, it feels good, but now is not the time to go to sleep. It is not the time to go to sleep. Um, if you didn't hear Richard at the table this morning, uh, you may have missed several things that were just, that touched my heart. If you thought perhaps that he Googled that from some 19th century eloquent writer, you would be wrong. It would take a lightning bolt to hit my tongue to be able to express some of the gospel sentiments that Richard can express from his heart. I really appreciate you for that. Um, thank you. And um, But one of those things was just the, uh, the kingship and the sheer, guys, the sheer terror of the day of the Lord when he returns in wrath against ungodliness first time he came he came to resolve a sin issue by saving us from our sins the next time he comes it's going to be to judge the world so between that time and the time that he comes again there there's some filler space psalm 110 speaks to that time by now you've seen i'm sure in anthony's lessons uh, that the psalter the song of israel the psalms are full of predictive prophecy about Jesus Christ. Is that not right? Full. In fact, someone once said that just as the prophets foretell of Christ and the law was the foundation for Christ, they say that the Psalms are the feelings of Christ. Now, when I heard that a long time ago and I began to read through the Psalms, it helped me to understand my Lord better 
But one of the things that makes these sermons in Psalms so powerful today for us under New Testament Christianity is merely the time frame that has lapsed between the time that these words were penned by David, nearly a thousand years, a millennia before Jesus Christ was born, speaking about him, but more, about his reign and about his second coming. It's powerful. I mean, I, I'm a little leery today myself. I'm still in a fog from coming from Western Europe, but when I stop and I think about that, and as I was preparing more on this lesson this week, I thought to myself, Matt, you're holding in your hands God's word. It really is God's word. He, he spoke about the things that I'm enjoying thousands of years ago. That's powerful. Oh, don't fall asleep today, <laughs> no matter how hard it rains. And uh, don't rely on a lightning bolt. All right, so um, we have in Psalm 110 seven verses that lay out three things about Jesus. Although you could say that they're all under one umbrella, it, but his kingship is spoken to in this psalm. His priesthood is spoken to, although that has to do with his kingship, actually, according to the order of Melchizedek. Um, but his authority to judge is spoken to as judge, but that also has to do with his kingship. So really, we're, we're looking at uh, a psalm here that speaks to a coming king that was Israel's hope. I want you to think about what it must have been like for them to sing this psalm, where David wrote lyrics that started out with, The Lord... And the Hebrew there is Yahweh, or Jehovah, said to my Lord. And the Hebrew there is Adonai, meaning the master whom I serve. So it says, the Lord said to my Lord, but really it says, Elohim, or Yahweh, spoke to the master whom I serve, my Lord. And it begs a question right off, does it not? Who's that? Who's David's Lord? Well, Jesus thought in his day that this would be a good question to ask too. So after a day of absolute interrogation from the, the scribes, the lawyers who were among the Pharisees and the Sadducees, after a day of interrogation and fielding questions and them having to say upon occasion, well said, when they had decided in their minds, I'm done asking this man questions, when it says that they, they were silenced, Jesus spoke up and he said, I have a question for you. So in Luke chapter, uh, excuse me, <clears throat> I chose the, the portion out of Matthew chapter 22. It's in three gospels and I'm going to read from Matthew chapter 22 where Jesus then takes it upon himself to ask a question and I love how he does this. There's a whole separate lesson on his approach here for us as Christians in engaging in conversation with those who do not believe. There's a, there's a whole lesson here I'd encourage you to look into and see how he does this. But he starts out by talking about something they all have a common interest in. They all believe that a Messiah would come. And so he asks them in verse 41, while the Pharisees were gathered together still, saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? 
fair question. It's an engaging question. Uh, it gave them an opportunity to, to consider something that was on his mind. Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David, as if to say, of, of course, which was a correct answer, was it not? Right? If you read the very first verse of the New Testament, you see that they answered that question right. Now, they, they didn't want to answer the second part of the first verse of the New Testament, that Christ was the son of David, but they, they wanted, and, and who was he? But they said, well, he, he's, the son of, he's the son of David. And he said to them, how then does David in the spirit, referring to the inspiration of the Psalms coming from the Holy Spirit of God, by the way, an apologetic value there. How is it then that David, in the spirit, called him, the Christ, Adonai, Lord? If Christ is how is it that David called him his Lord? Fathers don't call their sons or grandsons lords, do they? When he said, quoting from Psalm 110.1, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. If David then calls him Lord, Jesus said, how is he his son? So he does what is um, a commonality amongst the rabbis of the day. They liked to teach with questions. Uh, it was interesting. I was engaged in conversation with James, uh, who is a, a British um, citizen of Switzerland and a member of the church there and uh, he had done some research um, on the rabbinical writings and so forth and he said the rabbis of Jesus time taught by asking questions and he gave some examples of that and I, I thought that was uh, neat that he had looked into some detail on that and then uh, I came back to this and I said well here you go here's, here's the rabbi the rabboni as they called him asking how is this so? How can it be? If David calls the Christ his Lord, how can he be his son? Who is this then? And what's the conclusion Jesus wanted those in his hearing to reach? And why was it recorded, church, in three Gospels for us to receive and learn from? And what does it mean to us today? How does it affect my life today? Well, Jesus proceeds to answer that. In fact, it wasn't long thereafter. In Matthew chapter 26, verse 64, when Jesus was being interrogated again, only this time it was on the night of his betrayal, as he stood in the inner court and was being questioned by the high priest, who said, are you the Messiah? Just say so with great urgency, and Jesus said, it is as you say, but now listen to what he says, think about Psalm 110.1, the Lord said to my Lord, who's my Lord, that David said, my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool, Jesus said to the rabbis this, it is as you said, I am the Christ, in other words. Nevertheless, I say to you, hereafter, 
you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Upon that hearing, the priest tore his robe. Need we hear any more of this blasphemy? He claims to be God. He claims to be one who will sit at the right hand of God. And Jesus was quoting Psalm 110.1. So Jesus answered the question in the affirmative, didn't he? I'm not going to try to hold you in suspense this whole sermon and say, did you get it? The answer is Jesus, all right? I think you know where we're going, but I want you to see how Jesus not only reveals this, but what it means. What it means that he is David's Lord and that he wants us to understand him as our Lord. So as emphatically as the council rejected him, think of this now, they rejected him, sent him out, under condemnation of death, to a cross on a hill to be crucified in, in Roman fashion. And just, just as emphatically as he did that, when he was put in that tomb, buried, he carried my sins far away. Saying, When he was put in that tomb, the Lord, that is Yahweh, raised up his son, and then after 40 days, lifted him up by his side to sit at the right hand. Mark 16, 19, the second to the last verse of the gospel there. So then, Mark writes, after the Lord had spoken to them, after this 40 days and after they had all went up to the Mount of Olives and he had given them the great commission to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. So then, after the Lord had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven, and Mark writes, and sat down at the right hand of God. The Hebrew letter, if it's the Apostle Paul writing it, says, But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. Now listen, so there's the affirmation that Adonai is Christ, and Christ is Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus of Nazareth has uh, ascended into the heavens to sit at the right hand of God. Listen to this. This will be the next part of our sermon. From that time, from the time he sits down at the right hand of God, verse 13 of chapter 10, from that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. That's important. Church, that's important. From the time he sat down as king to the time that all of his enemies are brought under his foot, there's a waiting period. Guess what time we're living in? We're living in this time where he has been seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven, but all enemies are not yet brought under his foot. His footstool is not a a divine ottoman of some sort. When I hear footstool, I think about kicking back in a recliner and you know swinging up the thing or pulling over a little stool and putting it under my feet. But this is a, a military reference in Psalm 110 and also in these other places. A place to rest your foot for a conqueror was on the necks of your enemies. That's his footstool. Common practice to go up and literally place your foot on the neck of the king whom you just conquered. 
likely before execution. The idea here is that there is a time coming when Jesus Christ fully intends to come in judgment and God, Jehovah, will bring all of the enemies of God under his foot. He will stand upon them. I don't know about you, but I know what side I want to be on. I know where I want to be standing. I want to be standing behind him, (laughs) not under him. Amen? I don't want to be found as an enemy of God because I'm a lover of the world. I think this world's awesome. It's hard not to refer to uh, mission trips when you get back, and and you can do it to, to the belaboring of your audience, but we were just in one of the most beautiful places in the world, hands down. Switzerland's just beautiful. And I thought, I love this place. There's so many beautiful places, but it's so easy for us to lose sight of what God calls beautiful. It's so easy for us to lose sight that this is temporal and that there's a more beautiful place awaiting us. It's hard for me to imagine that, but I believe it and I trust it. We don't want to fall in love with the world or the things of the world. There's so many things that we can be doing and be caught up in. I don't want to come to the end and have him say, I never knew you. Get under my foot. And the rest of the psalm doesn't let up. The rest of the psalm kind of lays it right out there that this is a day of terror. The apostle Paul calls it the terror of the Lord. Peter says in the day of wrath, he'll begin in the church first. He'll begin with his own people first. How much more then? Hopeless are the ungodly and the sinners outside of the body. But from that time waiting. So let's ask another question. What's he doing? What's he doing while he's quote unquote waiting? Well, in the middle of the psalm here, if you have it open to Psalm 110, I I, I wish you would uh, open up and look at the uh, third verse where he says, I have made you a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. You could do a whole series of lessons on Melchizedek and go back and look at the history of it. It's fascinating, and it's fascinating that he's uh, typical of Jesus. But there's, there's two main things here to gather. Melchizedek was a priest king. He was the king of Salem, and he was priest to his people. That's unique to Hebrew thought. The Hebrew thought you had the kings coming from the line of Judah, and you had the priests coming from the line of Levi. And Jesus is likened to Melchizedek, and it says that he had neither father nor mother. And you might think at first that means, oh, he came from heaven just like Jesus or something. But um, what it means is that he had no lineage that naturally he was born into um, his priesthood. There, there was, he was kind of out of place as a priest serving as a king. And he was the king of Salem. Do you know what city that is? That's the name of Jerusalem before it was Jerusalem, inhabited by the Jebusites. It literally was Jebusalem, but for our linguistics, we call it Jerusalem. And Melchizedek was the king of Salem, same city, only in more ancient history did this priest king come from who met Abram and had dealings with Abram, the father 
of all those who had... Isn't that something? I mean, come on. God's working there, isn't he? Isn't he working to bring about this, this uh, salvation that we come to know through Jesus Christ? Way, way, way back in Genesis we read about that. It's just fascinating how much God is working here to bring this understanding about to us. So some of his enemies have been overcome. You might think, well, did he do anything when he died on the cross? Yes, absolutely. He released the power that sin can have on a human being. He released that from you. When you say, I want to be forgiven of my sins and I no longer want to be under the mastery of it, Jesus said, come to me, I will break that bond, and I'll make you a bondservant of mine. So we can overcome sin through Jesus Christ. We can win sin battles. We can do that. We can will with his power and together overcome sin. He has overcome Satan's grasp and leashed him, if you will. A number of places talk about Satan's presence still with us, among us, tempting us. No question about that. But that God has him limited to the extent to which he can touch you and try you. He has him on a, on a limited basis. And Paul is the one who wrote about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, that no that uh, no temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man, but with the temptation provides the way of escape. You can escape sin because of the work that Jesus Christ did. And it is powerful, isn't it? Sin is powerful. It grips your heart, it grips your mind, it grips your life, and he releases from it. However, that one who is present and limited is not yet under his foot. We have to go to Revelation chapter 19 to read a little bit more about this. Listen to uh, Revelation, or, or read with me, uh, Revelation 19. When I, was, when I was in Switzerland, I got in the habit of, of basically just asking them to listen because it was, it was so much work going through a translator to say flip here, flip there, flip here, flip there. I had to be selective. So here I am now saying, referring to everything. So I have, a, I have a, my full time back. You wouldn't believe it, church. You wouldn't believe it, but I preached two 15-minute sermons. All right, one was 17. Bryce is laughing over there. One was 17. But you got to double that with a translator. Uh, so um, in Revelation 19, verse 11, listen closely to the language and see how it uh, correlates with Psalm 110 and all of those things that Jesus had said about himself at the right hand of the Father. Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen. Think about those volunteers of Psalm 110, 3 and 4. And armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, and with it 
he should strike the nations. That's, it, that's the word. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. There's that scepter of Psalm 110. It's going forth from Zion. He himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of God Almighty. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I saw the beast, the kings of the earth and their armies. Here are some of these enemies, church, that he has yet to bring under his foot. Here they are. You might summarize them as false governments, false religions, and antichrists. The beasts was captured, or they were gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone, and the rest were killed with the sword, which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. Psalm 110.7. We have, from beginning to end, a very, very obvious revealing of who this Adonai is. But here we see that there are still enemies abroad and we are engaged with them and yet our Adonai has given us weapons for warfare. I think we could put those weapons into a couple of different categories spoken of both in the book of Ephesians. In chapter 4, he gives us gifts because he is the conqueror who took captivity captive and gave gifts to men. And some of those gifts were gifts of leadership, which he gave to certain of the church in order to equip all saints to use their gifts in ministry to go about conquering. Chapter 4. Chapter 6, do you know what else God gave us in our warfare? The armor of God, right? The armor of God not the least of which is the sword of the Spirit, or the Word of God, if you will, that sword that came out of his mouth in Revelation 19 in, in uh, sign language, symbolic language. And when he spoke, all the enemies were brought underneath his control. And that's all it takes. That's all it takes. Do you realize, as we sit here, that this earth floating on the axis of nothingness is being upheld by the word of his power. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Just by the word. The same word that out of nothing, ex nihilo, he spoke this into existence. The same word by which he said, let there be, and light was created, and vegetation, and the sky, and the water, and the animals, and man. By the same word, he continues to uphold this very day our existence. And it is going to be by a word, and that's all it's going to take, that all his enemies are going to be subdued under his feet. Until then, he wants us to exercise our will to know him, love him, and fight for this cause of saving man from our wretchedness. Saving us from our wretchedness. 
He didn't put us here to make war, but war was made. We ourselves have enlisted with the enemy of God, and now he says, I need to give you new weaponry, and now you need to fight for your own lives, and I'm going to fight before you, and I'm going to fight beside you, I'm going to be in you and among you. Now you're, you're in a fight because of sin. You're in a fight. Don't think about resting until you come home. Don't let your guards down as if you're off duty. We're all soldiers on call. Volunteers, if you will, having volunteered to follow Jesus Christ into his victory that we read about in Revelation. That's who he is. That's part of what he's doing. He's arming. He's helping conquer. And every time someone like Richard, who shared uh, at the offering, that the work that was being done at the Pickerington Church of Christ before any of us ever knew about the Lees, the work that we were doing to preserve, preach, and protect the gospel and, and, and war against the sin in this world, before we ever knew this family, prepared this to be a place where he and his family could come and find refuge, take up the fight, and, and fight for the cause, the good fight of faith, to which we will receive a reward. So we need to continue on in that same vein. He asked us to give generously for those whom we may never have met yet, who are coming into our assemblies or who are in your neighborhood, people who need to hear the gospel, people that we can bring into our midst and help them understand who this Lord is whom we serve. So this son of David was actually David's Lord, and he's our Lord, and he's going to be our Lord one way or another, someday or another, when all see him, all are going to bow before him as Lord. And so church, don't fall asleep on a rainy day, literally, don't fall asleep on a rainy day figuratively or spiritually. Think about the power that's in this psalm, when it was written, how it was written, about whom it was written, and that we are actually in the time right now that it spoke of, waiting until his enemies come under his foot. We're in a war. We're engaged in a war. We've taken up arms. So church, let that call you to... Um, action today, but let it call you to faith, let it call you to service, rely on God's power to save you, and uh, rely on God's power to take you forward, it's only by his power and by his grace that we're going to reach our destination that he longed for us to have when he made us, and that's uh, uh, his heavenly home, so that being said, we're going to sing a song that Larry's picked out, if you are in need of uh, prayers for strength, or you are in need of enlisting in the Lord's army, uh, we will gladly uh, baptize you into Christ based upon your profession of faith and your confession of sin and confession of him as your Lord. Let's stand and sing.